listening to Trojan War, the podcast, history's most awesome epic. This is episode number one in the series. Today's episode is titled, The Apple of Discord. Hi, and welcome to Trojan War, the podcast. My name is Jeff Wright. I am the researcher, the writer, the storyteller, and the producer of this series. Now, what Trojan War, the podcast is, is a serialized telling in contemporary 21st century language of, well, the myriad of stories that, well, if you combine them all together, comprise the epic story of the Trojan War. Now, each episode in the series that you'll listen to is going to present a particular story, and if you choose to listen to all of the episodes in order, well, you'll end up tuning into one big, epically big, I suppose, story arc. And now, there's a lot of material to cover. There, there's Achilles, of course, and, and Helen of Troy, the face that launched a thousand ships, and there's going to be a beauty contest between goddesses, and of course, at some stage in the proceedings, there will have to be a wooden horse. So, it's a lot of ground to cover. It's going to be an awful lot of fun. Let's get right into it, shall we, with today's Inaugural episode, which I've decided to call The Apple of Discord. So I need to take you to a mountain. The mountain is located in modern-day Greece. It's in the north of Greece. You can actually go visit the mountain today. And well, the reason I need you to take you to the mountain is because it's a particularly important mountain inside the history of this story, and in fact, inside of Greek mythology, because the mountain is called Mount Olympus, and it's, it's the home of the Olympian gods. You know these gods, you're familiar with at least some of their names. Zeus, king of the gods, master of the thunderbolt, his wife Hera, and there's Athena, there's Aphrodite, there's Apollo, there's 12 of them in total. And on the day when the epic story of the Trojan War really gets going, the story begins on Mount Olympus, and that is the one recorded day in history when Zeus, king of the gods, chose to remove the veil of mist that shrouded Mount Olympus from human sight. Now, the reason Zeus did this on this day, which happened sometime about 4,000 years ago, is because Zeus had decided to host a wedding. And the wedding that Zeus was hosting was going to be the largest, most spectacular wedding in the entire history of myth or epic or humanity. The two people being married were unique. The bride-to-be was, was actually a deity herself. She was a minor goddess. She was what was called a sea nymph. Uh, not one of the big-time powerful goddesses, but, but an immortal goddess all the same. Her, her, her name was Thetis, and what she did as a sea nymph is basically hang around the Mediterranean sunbathing. And, and Thetis, the bride-to-be, was going to be marrying a human being, a, a Greek Bronze Age warlord, a guy named Peleus. Now, Zeus was hosting the wedding because Zeus had ordained or decreed that the wedding would happen. And so Zeus thought, well, since I made this in order that it'll happen, the least I can do is put out a decent spread, hire a good caterer, bring in a DJ, and make the thing work properly. The other thing that Zeus had decided to do is, because it was a god wedding a human being, Zeus had decided that he'd allow Peleus, a human being, to 
invite some of his friends and family and relatives as he chose to, to make the long trek up to the top of Mount Olympus. Zeus removed the mist and the human beings were invited into the Great Hall and they participated as honored guests in the wedding beside the Olympian deities and a whole collection of gods, demigods, semigods, heroes, etc. and that type of thing. So the Great Hall of Mount Olympus was full and booming for this wedding. Now, it should have been a happy and a wonderful occasion except for one problem, and that's that the bride-to-be Thetis was there under protest. She did not want to be getting married. And there was a reason she didn't want to be getting married, and the reason was that the partner that Zeus, king of the gods, had chosen for her, that Zeus, king of the gods, had decreed that she needed to marry was, well, a human being, a, a mere mortal. And Thetis, as a goddess, felt that this union was about 900 stations below her social status. It, it was an embarrassment to her, but she had protested, she had screamed, she had complained, she had begged Father Zeus, please don't make me marry a human being. And, and Zeus had been adamant, you have to marry this guy. I have my reasons. Now, Zeus didn't reveal his reasons to anybody, but I can reveal Zeus's reasons to you. Zeus had caught wind of a prophecy about this, this demigod, this sea nymph named Thetis. And the prophecy stated that if Thetis ever gave birth to a child, the child that Thetis gave birth to would be more powerful than the father of that child. Now, Zeus king of the gods, master of the thunderbolt, had got the job of being king of the gods, master of the thunderbolt himself by, well, by killing his dad. And Zeus's dad had got the job by killing his dad. There was a, a, a long, proud, established family deity tradition inside of the Zeus family tree of, of Patricide. They, they off to their dads all the time. And Zeus knew then that well, if he didn't get Thetis to marry some kind of a human being and Zeus ended up marrying Thetis or some other deity ended up marrying Thetis and the child of that union could end up being very, very powerful and dangerous and a possible threat to Zeus or to the other deities. So Zeus had decided the only way to ensure that Thetis' potential future children pose no threat to the deities on Mount Olympus, himself included, was to force Thetis to marry a human being. And that way the kid even if the kid was powerful and good-looking and all of those things, would be mortal and absolutely no threat whatsoever to an Olympian god. So Zeus had ordered Thetis to marry Peleus. Uh, now, Thetis, I said, was really annoyed by this, but Peleus, on the other hand, well, Peleus was, well, you can imagine, I mean, he was a human Bronze Age king, and now he was, he was getting to marry a deity, a, a demigod. She should be eternally young. She'd be eternally beautiful. I mean, Peleus was thrilled to death with the entire thing. Well, we're told that the wedding on Mount Olympus that Zeus hosted had, had been going on for 10 days and 10 nights without stop. And before you take that literally, one of the things that I'll have to introduce you to in this series is the proud epic tradition of using big round numbers to exaggerate when you really just mean a really long time. So when you hear numbers like uh, 10 days and 10 nights or 10 years or 40 days and 40 nights or things like that or 100,000 people, well, take those numbers always with a grain of salt. What, they, what the storytellers are saying is, a really long time or a really big number of people. It's just an epic exaggeration. So let's just leave it that the wedding had been going on for quite a while. The humans are having a wonderful time due to the magic of Mount Olympus. Uh, Zeus had ensured that the humans never, ever, ever ate too much. They, they could eat as much as they wanted without ever getting that, oh my God, I ate too much feeling. Uh, 
due to the magic of Mount Olympus, they could drink as much as they want without anybody ever turning around and saying, oh my God, you drank too much. And then as a special bonus, Zeus had brought in a really, really, really good DJ and everybody was dancing to their favorite genre of music playing in their head. Everybody's hearing completely different genres at the same time, but it was, it was just basically an absolutely wonderful time. And it stayed that way for, as I epically said, 10 days and 10 nights. But then sometime in the evening of the 10th day, right when the wedding was really kicking into high gear, there was suddenly a knock on the back door of the wedding hall. And the knock sounded, well, it sounded like this. Well, the hall immediately fell silent. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, we all know why the hall fell silent because we, we recognize that knock. Think about that knock. You know, the genre of movie that you'd, you'd hear that knock in. That, that knock belongs to, you know, the genre of horror movies or something like that. If, if you're alone in your home, it's three o'clock in the morning, you're down in the basement, you're watching television, and suddenly you hear that particular knock on the front door of your home. Well, you know you're in trouble. You know that something bad is outside the door and that you are soon going to die. That's the archetypical knock of doom. And the curious thing is it must be a, a really, really old archetype because 4,000 years ago in the Great Hall of Mount Olympus, when Zeus, king of the gods, master of the thunderbolt, heard that knock on the back door of his great hall, Zeus fell silent, dropped his dinner fork, and said, oh oh Well, you can imagine the response of the rest of the hall. If Zeus, king of the gods, was saying, oh oh well, how were the human beings sitting near the back of the hall supposed to feel? Well, Peleus, the groom, sitting beside Zeus, turned around and seeing the fear on Zeus's face, turned around and, and sort of said, you know, forgive me, Father Zeus, master of the thunderbolt, lord of the universe, yada, 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 but I couldn't help but notice that you appear to be afraid. How is that possible, Zeus? I, I, I thought you were, uh, you were an omnipotent god. And Zeus had had to explain to Peleus that even though Zeus was an immortal god, the, the Olympian gods were not omnipotent. Uh, Zeus went on to explain to Peleus that there were forces in the universe more ancient and more powerful than even the Olympian gods themselves. And Zeus sighed and said, I'm sorry, Peleus, but one of those forces has decided to crash your wedding. Peleus inquired further, and Zeus explained that the thing knocking outside the door was, a, was an ancient goddess. Her, her name was Eris, and she was the goddess of discord. Uh, Peleus needed explanation on discord. Uh, Zeus went on to explain that well, what Eris liked to do is she liked to crash happy occasions. Her specialty was weddings, christenings, family reunions, birthday parties, that sort of thing. And, and what Eris, the goddess of discord, would do is she'd show up always uninvited because nobody ever invites discord to a happy occasion. But she'd always show up uninvited. She'd crash the event and she'd work a kind of dark magic on the event, which would mean that within five minutes of Eris's arrival at a happy occasion, there was inevitably screaming, slamming of doors and people yelling things like, I hate you, this is the worst wedding or family reunion ever. And Eris would quietly smile, leave the room and her work would be done. She'd have ruined a happy occasion. She was a one-trick goddess. That was her only trick. But as Zeus sighed and turned around to Peleus, she was very, very good at it. Well, Peleus asked Zeus, he said, well, can't you just keep the door closed? I don't, I don't want her at my wedding. I, marriage has enough discord without like inviting it. And Zeus turned around and said, I'm sorry, Peleus, but she's, she's a force of nature. 
I, I can't stop her from entering. And, and besides Peleus, yeah, you, you know the archetypes and the stories. I mean, if you don't, don't invite Discord, well, Discord always crashes anyway. So I'm very sorry, Peleus, but I need to open the door. Well, Zeus gave the order, the, the door to the Great Hall was opened, and in she stepped, the goddess of discord. Uh, she walked deliberately to the head table. She stood in front of Peleus. She smiled, and she reached into her cloak to present Peleus with a gift. Now, Peleus was no fool. He hadn't become a successful Bronze Age warlord by being, by being a clumsy politician or not being quick in his feet. So Peleus knew instinctively that he did not want to receive whatever gift it was that the goddess of discord was going to place into his hands. So he, he turned around and he, he made a speech to try to save the situation. So he stood up. He smiled his most charming political smile. He, he looked the little old goddess of discord dead in the eye and he spoke. He said, my lady, I'm so glad you received the invitation. He's lying, of course. He never sent the invitation. But then Peleus went on and smiled and said, But no present is necessary. Your presence here is present enough. Well, I think the speech should have worked. I, I think it was diplomatic. It was elegant. And it, it had a beautiful double play on the word presence. But Eris, the goddess of discord, was having none of it. So Peleus tried a second approach. He turned around. He smiled. And a bit more matter-of-factly, he said, Actually, if you read the invitation, Thetis and I aren't accepting gifts, but we would appreciate if you want to make a check out to your favorite charity. But again, that wasn't working. Eris clearly was going to give Peleus a gift, and Peleus kind of turned to Zeus for direction. Did he have to receive this gift? And Zeus sighed and whispered under his breath that when a god gives a human a gift to Peleus, uh, the human has to take it. You have no choice. So Peleus reached out his hand with some trepidation, and Eris, the goddess of discord, reached into her cloak, pulled out the gift, placed it into Peleus's hand, smiled, said something ominous, ironic, and foreboding like, have a nice life, Peleus, and Eris, the goddess of discord, left the room. And for all intents and purposes, ladies and gentlemen, Eris, the goddess of discord, left our story. She had done what she needed to do to get the Trojan War epic up and running. She had arrived at a point in space and time and brought discord to an occasion. And, and that discord that she brought was going to, well, first destroy the wedding, next destroy the happiness and the harmony of the deities on Mount Olympus, and ultimately percolate down to Earth where it was going to become a human problem. And the form it was going to take, of course, was in what we now call the Trojan War. So Eris's work was done. She left the hall and Peleus was left to examine the gift that was resting peacefully, quietly, and innocently enough looking in the palm of his hand. Now what Peleus saw when he looked in the palm of his hand kind of surprised him a little bit. He'd, he'd been kind of a, expecting something obviously evil like a, a poison snake or a bloody dagger or something like that. But what was actually resting in his hand was actually well, it, it actually looked pretty nice. It, it, it was an apple made all of gold. It was shiny and pretty and innocuous looking. Now, poor Peleus, of course, lived in the Bronze Age, so he didn't have the advantage that I do and you folks listening do of knowing that apples are always, always, always bad news in the stories. I mean, if Peleus had have known, he, he might not have been so excited about the apple, but he, he didn't know the apple stories, but, but we do. And if you think about them, there aren't any stories inside of world culture or literature involving apples that don't really end badly. I mean, you can go back to the, the foundational story of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and you know it's the story of the Garden of Eden where 
God creates Adam and Eve and slaps them into the Garden of Eden, turns around and says, you kids frolic, have fun, do whatever you want. Just do not consume the fruit from that tree over there, which traditionally in the stories is depicted as an apple tree. And of course, Adam and Eve consume the fruit and, well, another epic story is off and running with discord already. And these stories, of course, percolate down through the, the centuries in the culture. And I'll leave it to your imagination to remember all the stories with poison or dangerous apples. And, and I will recall that you're likely actually listening to this particular podcast now on a device which has a little Apple logo on it. And don't tell me that that hasn't created some evil and discord inside of your life or at least your bank account. Well, Peleus didn't know any of this stuff. So Peleus looked at the apple and he admired it for a moment. And then he realized that there was some sort of scrawling or etching on it. No. Peleus, being a Bronze Age warlord, lived in a preliterate society. So he turned around to Zeus and he said, can you decipher what, what the apple says? I can't read, Zeus. And Zeus had put on his reading glasses, taken a quick look, and, and said, well, it says, for the fairest, for the most beautiful. Peleus was momentarily confused. Uh, he kind of whispered under his breath to Zeus. He said, uh, well, that heiress goddess must be blind because uh, well, she gave it to me and I'm a dude and I'm not even that good a looking dude. And uh, the, the room is full of goddesses and, and there's some real hotties sitting over at the table near the back. I mean, why did she give it to me? Well, Zeus had turned around to Peleus and under his breath had replied, uh, Peleus, I think you're supposed to re-gift the apple to some woman in the room. And the moment he said it, Peleus suddenly realized that this apple did indeed contain potential discord. A, a room full of, of deities, semi-deities, quasi-deities, and, and then queens and princesses, and one apple addressed for the fairest. Who do, you, who do you possibly give it to if you're Peleus without offending or insulting a whole, whole lot of people in that hall? Well, Peleus thought for a moment, but as I said, he was a, he was a bright Bronze Age politician, and he suddenly realized he was going to have an opportunity here to do something that us guys are often accused of not being very good at doing, which is being romantic and spontaneous all at the same time. So Peleus grinned, he smiled, and he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll just give the apple to my reluctant bride-to-be Thetis. Nobody will be able to fault me. And, 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 and Peleus was already beginning to compose his speech and desperately looking to the back of the room to the DJ and hoping that the DJ would pick up on the cues and that when Peleus began to address his reluctant bride-to-be, the DJ would come in with some sort of a sweeping string section and possibly play some sort of audio trick on Peleus his voice to make him sound a little bit more like Barry White. So Peleus stood up and he, he knew what he was going to say. He was, he was going to hold out the apple, call the hall to attention, and then say something like, Thetis, I know that you don't love me now and that you don't want to marry me, Thetis, but I just want to tell you in front of this entire assembled congregation that Thetis, in a room full of deities, I have eyes only for you. You are truly the fairest. And then, you know, if the DJ got the strings just right and the voice processing just right, uh, he'd finish the speech. There'd be a sweeping string section. And, and, and Paley thought, well, maybe it'll melt her heart or at least soften it enough, at least enough to get me to my bedroom tonight with her. But Paleus never got the opportunity to make that speech. Because just as he was about to open his mouth and just as the DJ had caught the signal and was queuing up the string section... One of the goddesses at the head table cleared her throat in a very clear, deliberate, and pointed manner. It, it sounded like this. <clears throat> yes, that was, a, that was a goddess at the head table. Her name, her name, folks, was Hera. Now, 
you know Hera. You know that Hera is the wife of Zeus, queen of the gods. But what you might not know, that everybody in the hall that day knew, including Peleus, is that not only was Hera queen of the gods, Hera was a very, 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 very vain, dangerous, and vindictive goddess. If you got on the wrong side of Hera, she would smite you, smite your family, smite your relatives, and and sometimes, for good measure, smite your city too. You didn't mess with Hera, and it was very clear just in the way that Hera had cleared her throat that she fully expected, in fact demanded, that Peleus award the apple to her. Which begs the question, along with her other qualities as I've described them, was Hera the fairest goddess in the room? And the only charitable answer to that question is, well, maybe once, maybe a few centuries ago, but in the looks department, well, Hera's best years were quite a few centuries of epics behind her. But Peleus knew that not giving Hera the apple could be really, really bad news. He realized suddenly that the apple wasn't an apple of opportunity. It was an apple of discord. And, and, and he was forced into a horrible, horrible situation. I mean, he, he thought, well, I, I could give the apple to, to my reluctant bride-to-be Thetis, but then Hera just might smite the two of us on the spot. And, well, that's the end of that. Or I could turn around and I could give the arrow to Hera, and then I'm going to have to turn around to my bride-to-be who already doesn't want to be here and explain why I found the cougar goddess more attractive than her. And Peleus stood there frozen in indecision. He realized that this was a no-win situation for a human being. Well, he paused for a moment. He considered his options, but then he came up with an idea. He decided what he'd do is he'd just employ a standard political trick that he used back on Earth whenever he ended up in a situation where there was a, a dicey or a difficult or an awkward political problem that he had to deal with where there was really no clear way out of it. And Peleus knew on Earth as a politician what he did when he got into situations like that is he, he'd find somebody else to foist the problem off onto. And then when it hit the fan, so to speak, well, Peleus could kind of shrug his shoulders, wring his hands and say, well, it wasn't me, it wasn't my decision, I, I wasn't at all responsible for what happened, and walk away from the situation. So Peleus knew all he really needed to do was locate some individual in that great hall who was dim enough to accept the golden apple and agree to judge the contest, and that way Peleus would be off the hook. Now, fortunately for Peleus, as he scanned the great hall looking for his sucker, he didn't have to look far because Peleus was sitting beside Zeus, king of the gods, master of the thunderbolt. Now, Zeus was a god of very, very great and impressive thunderbolt, but like, well, so many men with great and impressive thunderbolt, what he had in the thunderbolt department, he he had lost in the brains and intellect department to go along with it. Zeus was not the brightest knife in the block up there on Mount Olympus. But Zeus was vain, he was egotistical, and he was very, very, very proud of his thunderbolt. So Peleus stood up, took advantage of the situation, he called the hall to attention, and he, he made a speech where he essentially pointed out his inability as a mere human being to make a decision which required the judgment, the wisdom, the sagacity, and the discernment of a deity. And then Peleus turned around and he, he invited the hall to propose who they thought was the wisest, greatest, most wonderful, thunderbolty individual in the room to make the decision. And the hall, of course, erupted in huge chants of Zeus, Zeus, Zeus. And Peleus looked at Zeus and Zeus, who fell for the flattery instantly, leapt up from the head table, put on a pyrotechnic show for the ages with his thunderbolts, grabbed the apple and announced to everybody, I, Zeus, will decide. 
Well, Peleus had sat down, handed the apple over to Zeus, and then Peleus had done his best to look invisible. And about five seconds later, Zeus realized that now it was his problem and he was going to have to choose which woman in the room to give that apple to. And apparently, and it's not accounted anywhere except in the epics, but history's first Homer Simpson moment was born and a mighty dope emitted out from Mount Olympus and down onto Earth. As Zeus realized that he had to decide. Well, he looked around the room. So many goddesses in one apple, and then it occurred to Zeus that, well, there was a way out of the problem. Uh, it was a way he didn't like. The, uh, the way out of the problem was going to stick in his craw, but he realized it is a way out of the problem. And so Zeus sucked in his gut and thought, well, all I'll do is I'll, I'll give the apple to my wife, Hera. Nobody will be able to fault me, and everybody will know that she's not the most beautiful or fair goddess in the room, but, you know, to say, well, a guy's got to do what he's got to do, and, you know, you don't want to be messing with Hera, even if you're married to her. Now, the reason it's stuck in Zeus's craw is because Zeus and Hera despised each other. It was mutual, and there's a certain irony in it, because they were the god and goddess of marriage. But Zeus and Hera really just most of the time didn't get along at all. And there were reasons for this, and they were mutual reasons. Uh, Hera didn't like Zeus because Zeus spent most of his downtime as a deity uh, touring around the heavens and the earth, finding women to sleep with, and then leaving them pregnant. So all of creation was was littered with the offspring of, of Zeus and his liaisons. And for Hera, it was just embarrassing. Now, from Zeus's perspective... Um, well, his view on it was that Hera was a nag. She was always complaining. She was always grumbling about something. She was always pointing out Zeus's inadequacies. And, and the other thing she was doing, of course, was traveling around behind all these illegitimate offspring that Zeus left behind and murdering them all whenever she had the opportunity. So the enmity between Hera and Zeus was very real, very mutual, and very legitimate. They barely, barely held it together. So, Zeus... Well, the idea of giving the apple to Hera was really sticking in his craw. He knew what she'd do with it. She'd, she'd bring it back to their home on Mount Olympus. She'd go into their bedroom. She'd place the apple on the mantelpiece. And for the next century or so, every time that Zeus and Hera had a fight, Hera would tearfully run over to the mantelpiece, point to the apple, and say, there was a time when you thought it was beautiful, Zeus. There was a time. And Zeus thought, I guess I'll just have to bear it. So he was about to give her the apple. But then... Another goddess at the head table caught Zeus's attention. She was sitting down at the end of the head table, and she very quietly and deliberately stood up. She brushed back her luxurious mane of hair. She, she wiggled her hips. She, she licked her lips. She, she kind of smiled and batted her eyes. And then in a kind of husky, sultry kind of barroom voice, she, she said something like, Oh, Zeus, I'd kind of like that apple, big boy. Well, you know the goddess's name, of course. The goddess's name is Aphrodite. Now, it's really interesting about Aphrodite, I'm talking about the powers of the goddess. And, and some of you might have been victims of an unfortunate education system and, and have grown up believing that Aphrodite was the goddess of love and beauty. And I, I remember when I used to tell this story 
or versions of this story in high school classrooms. I'd, I'd get to this particular part in the episode and, and I'd say, and her name was Aphrodite, and the students would always have a government-provided textbook in front of them called, you know, Greek Mythology 101. And in the back of the textbook, of course, it'd be a glossary listing each of the deities. And beside the deity, there'd be sort of a list of their superpowers. You know, do, do, do they have like, you know, a hammer they can throw? Or do they, do they have like a, a shield that they can shoot? Or do they have magic armor? You know, that kind of thing. And when I'd tell the story and I'd say her name was Aphrodite, the students would immediately flip to the back of the textbook and, and look up Aphrodite to find out her powers. And it would always say in the textbook, Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of love and beauty. And, and I would have to spend the next five minutes disabusing the poor students of that notion. Aphrodite was not the goddess of love and beauty. Aphrodite was the goddess of, well, as I used to say to the students, Aphrodite was a goddess of everything south of the waste. Put bluntly, she was a goddess of lust, sexual passion, and all those other good things. And Aphrodite was really, really, really spectacularly gifted at her job. And now Aphrodite was standing at the head table and, well, just by the way she had said, I'd kind of like that apple, big boy. It was, it was pretty clear that Aphrodite was proposing some sort of a, a trade to mutual benefit with Zeus. Uh, Zeus would give her the apple, and Aphrodite in exchange would give Zeus, I guess, well, whatever his little heart desired. Now, Zeus had had his eye on Aphrodite for centuries, but every time he had proposed an assignation with her, Aphrodite had turned around and said, not a chance, big boy. And now here was this, well, golden opportunity, just sitting there waiting for Zeus to take it. So what was a poor deity to do? He could give the apple to his wife, or he could give the apple to a possible mistress. And as Zeus stood there paralyzed in inactivity, well, a third female goddess at the head table spoke up. She was sitting at the far end of the table from Aphrodite. She stood up. She, she placed her hands very sensibly on her hips, and in a very calm, quiet, measured, confident voice, she spoke. Dad, she said, do the smart thing. Give the apple to me. Well, the goddess's name, of course, was Athena, and Athena was Zeus's daughter. Athena was the goddess of wisdom. Athena was the brains of Mount Olympus, and Athena clearly wanted to be awarded the apple for the fairest. Now, you're likely wondering, how on earth did Athena, the goddess of wisdom, how could she possibly be the child of Zeus, who I presented as a god of great thunderbolt and little brain? You're, you're likely wondering, well, who was, who, who was the mom? It like, must have been a really intelligent somebody on that side of, of the coupling, and well, the thing is, there was no mother to Athena. And maybe I'll have to give you a bit of a quick fun backstory to explain it. So we, we need to go back in time before this story, way back to the dawn of mythological time, whenever that was. And, and I need to take you to a time before Athena was born, before, well, if you want to be metaphorical here, before wisdom entered creation. And in those days, whatever wisdom there was in creation was buried someplace deep, 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 in the skull of Zeus, king of the gods. Now, one day back in the dawn of mythological time, Zeus woke up with, well, a splitting headache. And, and the headache, the epic tells us, went on for days or weeks or, or years or centuries, some epically long time. And the headache just wouldn't go away. And it was driving Zeus completely nuts. So, so finally, in desperation one day, he, had, he, had, he called in another deity and he, he said, I need your help with something. Uh, I need you to take that axe over there and I'm going to hold my head really steady. And what I need you to do is I need you to sever off the top third of my skull, if you don't mind. 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach into my skull once you sever it, and I'm going to grab that headache thing that's bugging me. It's in my head. I'll just take it out, and then you can put the skull back on. It'll heal. I'm an immortal god, and, and the headache will be gone. Well, Zeus's Zeus's accomplice agreed to the task, and they, they very cleanly severed off Zeus's skull. He optimistically reached in, and he fished around in there in his brains till he felt the headache. He pulled it out. He plopped it out. He put it on the ground beside him, sewed his skull back around, and, well, the headache turned into his fully grown adult daughter, Athena. Hi, Dad, she said. And ladies and gentlemen, from that day forward, the wisdom of creation, the wisdom on Mount Olympus, resided exclusively in the brains of Athena, Zeus's daughter. Zeus never had a headache or an independent creative thought again as long as he lived. So it it begs a question, though. I mean, Athena is obviously the goddess of wisdom. And so you're likely wondering, well, why would Athena, the goddess of wisdom, even care about being awarded an apple for the fairest? I mean, if this is just a a tacky little beauty contest for the most good-looking, hot woman in the room, then, well, surely a goddess of wisdom is above that sort of petty thing. And I've often wondered about it myself, and 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 then one day when I was thinking about the story, it suddenly occurred to me, I know why Athena wanted the apple. So here's my hypothesis, and you can decide if you like it or not. But think about it from Athena's perspective. Athena saw that golden apple in the hall, and she realized that her father, Zeus, king of the gods, master of the thunderbolt, had assembled in that hall in that day all the who's who of Olympian deities, all the minor gods, the semi-gods, the demigods, the heroes, and a sizable proportion of human royalty. And Zeus, king of the gods, was about to stand up, hold a golden apple in the air, and declare on the nature of female beauty. Well, Athena was immortal, she was wise, and she was also prescient. She could see into the future. So my guess is that Athena recognized that this was a defining moment in not only God history, but in human history too. And Athena likely reasoned that if Zeus, king of the gods, master of the thunderbolt, stands up and announces that I am giving the apple to the most beautiful woman in the room, and then turns around and awards the apple not to south of the waste goddess, but instead to wisdom, intelligence, and creativity goddess, Athena. Well, Athena likely realized that, well, the history of her sisters and of her human sisters down through the ages might be a whole heck of a lot nicer. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine a world where us guys thought that beauty, true, real beauty, was your brains and not what you were packing south of the waste? I mean, Athena was likely thinking about the future and looking to the 21st century and and, and wondering how things would change. You know, maybe cosmopolitan magazines would have completely different headlines. You'd, You'd get cheesy covers with airbrushed pictures of really intelligent women and the headlines would say, seven new ways to achieve earth shattering insight. Or five little intellectual tricks you can play on your man. You know, that kind of thing. And Athena maybe thought it would change everything, so she desperately, desperately, desperately wanted that apple. But Zeus, king of the gods, being a god of great thunderbolt and little brain, could not make up his mind. Do I give the apple to my wife? Do I give the apple to a possible mistress? Or do I give the apple to my intelligent, sensible daughter? And as Zeus stood there paralyzed into indecision, well, the wedding, which had been so happy and wonderful for 10 days and 10 nights, crashed into, well, what can only be called discord. 
The other deities in the room began to take sides, lining up behind either Hera or Athena or Aphrodite and shouting out to the goddess that they thought should be awarded the apple. And then the semi-gods took side and the demigods and the heroes. And before long, the wedding had sort of descended into chaos and yelling and screaming and bickering. And, and Peleus, sitting at the head table and watching this, realized that Hera was beginning to smolder. And, and Peleus realized there was a problem here because sometimes when the deities really got upset, they began to throw things around like cutlery, china, or landforms. And Peleus realized that, well, the gods are immortal. They, they can't kill each other if they do this. But if I get caught in the crossfire, I'm a dead man. So in a panic, Peleus had grabbed his reluctant bride-to-be Thetis and said, we're getting out of here now. And the bride and groom ran away from their own wedding and they didn't stop running until they made it all the way back down to Peleus' estate on earth. Well, the minute they left the hall, of course, every other human being immediately took their cue from Peleus and, and cleared out of the hall. And then some of the Myrna deities realized this could get really ugly in a hurry and they cleared out. So within five minutes, there were only four individuals left in that wedding hall. Zeus, king of the gods, master of a fairly impotent-looking thunderbolt at the moment, and three very, very, very angry deities, all demanding the apple. Well, Zeus knew that there was no possible way he could make this decision, because if he gave it to one of the goddesses, well, he'd make two eternal enemies. So Zeus thought for a brief moment with what was left of the deep, deep, deep recessed parts of his brain, and it occurred to him he could take a, a page from the Peleus playbook. He'd foist the problem off on somebody other than himself. So Zeus turned around, he looked, and he realized, well, there's nobody in the room to foist the problem off onto. So Zeus decided on doing something which gods in all the epics and in many more mythologies in Greek frequently do when they get into trouble, and that's bring their problems down to earth and dump them onto us human beings. So Zeus stood up, he called the ladies to attention, and he said, ladies, I have decided. There will be a beauty contest, and one of you will be awarded the apple. But I will not judge that contest. The contest will be judged by a human being. And ladies, once that human being chooses a winner, the two of you who lose are welcome to smite him all you want. Just leave the smiting down on earth. Make this a human problem. Keep us deities out of it. And at that, Zeus tucked the apple into his pocket, left the great hall, and went looking for a judge, a human being, for a beauty contest. Now, Zeus was going to eventually locate that judge, and when the judge was located, and when the judge ultimately decided which of the three deities to award the apple to, well, there was one very, very happy deity who was going to support that judge, that judge's family, and that judge's city, and two bitter, angry, jealous, and vindictive deities who were going to make that judge, his family's life, and his city's life, a misery and a hell. And so, ladies and gentlemen, our epic, the Trojan War epic, history's most awesome epic, is underway. And that's a great place to leave things for today. Now, at this point in the telling, in the podcast, I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of options. If you're just in the podcast for the story, if you're going, I, I just want to hear the story, Jeff, I'm, I'm just having fun with the story, then you can leave right now. And what you can do is you can head over to my website, trojanwarpodcast.com, and episode two, titled The Torch, will be up and waiting for you there. On the other hand, if you're the kind of person that kind of goes, well, the story's great, but I, I kind of want a little bit of stuff in the backstory, and I have a lot of questions about these deities, and 
kind of where did this story come from? And, and you might be asking the question everybody always asks, which is, is the story true? Well, if you're interested in that sort of commentary and conversation and discussion, I'm going to spend about 10 minutes now sort of talking about some of the cool issues, ideas, and things that come out of the story. But I can promise you this. If you stick around for the commentary, I will give you my no spoilers promise. I'm not going to say anything in the next 10 minutes, which is in any way going to ruin some of the fun or the surprises in the episodes to follow. And if you're leaving now and you're just heading off to podcast number two, The Torch, well, I promise you that I'm not going to talk about anything in the next 10 minutes, which is going to ruin your fun or your ability to enjoy that story. So for some of you now, it's time to say goodbye. I hope you had a great time with the first episode and episode number two, The Torch, is waiting there for you to listen to. And for the rest of you, well, let's just get into it right now. So this story. A lot of people have asked me, well, Jeff, why are you bothering to do a, a podcast series on this story anyway? There's lots of different accounts and versions of the story out there. And that is true. There are lots of stories, although I don't think there's any other podcast versions of this that you can kind of portably carry around. But the reason I'm telling this story, actually, is because I've spent an awful lot of my adult professional life as an educator playing with this story and developing this story and doing different things with it. I, I, I perform versions of this story live before high school audiences. I I perform episodes of this story sort of, a, you know, sort of risqued up a little bit in clubs and that sort of thing. But all my life, I've wanted to basically tell every, every, every episode in this huge epic story without being limited by time constraints or, you know, the audience will only sit still for two hour constraints and that kind of thing. So the podcast format is perfectly for me to do it. I, I can take my time, ease through this serialized story. And like every story, the Trojan War epic has a beginning, a middle and an end. And while you've heard the beginning, I have no idea where the middle or the end will be, but there's a lot of really cool stuff to cover. Now, the other reason I like telling the story, of course, is because the story is full of all those kind of really awesome aha moments. You know those moments you have where you're familiar with a, a term or a name or an idea inside of culture, but you, you really don't know where it came from. And then suddenly you're reading something or watching a movie or something and you go, oh, that's where that term came from. Well, the terms inside of the Trojan War epic permeate our, our, our culture. And you know these terms. You've already heard phrases like his Achilles heel. You've already heard phrases like the face that launched a thousand ships. Uh, you've already heard phrases like beware of Greeks bearing gifts. And, and, and those phrases and those terms and those concepts all come from this story. So if you, if you hang around for the podcast series, you're going to have these, you know, those delicious little moments where you're going to hear something and suddenly you're going to feel all warm inside. and You're going to connect the dots in your brain and you're going to go, oh, I know where that came from now. Cool. Well, that will happen all the time inside of this series. Now, the third reason I like telling the story is because this story just because of the way it originated, gives me as a storyteller an incredible amount of literary and artistic license and latitude. And, and here's why. The story of the Trojan War involves a war between Greece and Troy, which may or may not have happened sometime on or about 1250 BCE. Now, after this war may or may not have happened, for the next 500 years after this war, well, the people involved in this war told stories about the war. Now, in the Bronze Age world, there, there was no media, there was no literacy, and there was certainly, you know, no CNN or Wikipedia or anything like that. So the only way that stories of the war could be passed on from person to person to person was through traveling storytellers. And, and so what would happen is for the years following the war, storytellers would spread out across the Mediterranean world and turn around and say, well, let me tell you what happened in the war. And they tell an episode of something that happened inside of the Trojan War. Now, when they did this, of course, 
people would be listening either in a great hall or, or in a tavern or something when the storyteller was talking. And then that person might go, oh, that's a really good story. I'm going to tell that someday. And so the person would leave the taverna or the nightclub or the great hall and they'd, they'd go and they'd tell two friends and then they'd tell two friends and they'd tell two friends. And exponentially, the, the different stories of this war would begin to grow and spread across the Mediterranean basin. But there was more to it than that. Uh, do you remember that fun game we used to play at camp? I think we called it, you know, the telephone game where you'd sit in a really big circle and the first person would whisper a sentence into the second person's ear and then write the sentence down. And then the second person would whisper that sentence into the third person's ear and it would go around the circle. And by the time you got back to the start of the circle, 15 or 20 people later, the, the, the final person would turn around and they would state the sentence that they had heard and the sentence would be compared with the original sentence that had started out at the start of Circle, a bunch of tellers earlier, and great hilarity and comedy would ensue. Well, you've got to imagine that not only did this story develop for 500 years before the Greeks had a written language, but it was a combination of I told two friends and they told two friends grafted onto the telephone game. So the stories about the war spread out, morphed, evolved, developed and took on myriad shapes, forms, and lives of their own. And well, by the time that you got to about 700 BCE, there was this huge jambalaya of, of plots and stories and characters and motivations all about this war, which may or may not have happened in 1250 BCE. Now, about that time, a, a guy named Homer, and forgive me, who may or may not have existed, the jury is still out, wrote a brilliant literary masterpiece called the Iliad, and the Iliad does exist, and it's brilliant. Go read it sometime. And and Homer, or Homer's, or whoever it was, managed to encapsulate some of the oral tradition stories into the Iliad, but the Iliad itself only consists of about you know, 10, 12, maybe 14 weeks in this epically long war, which went on for, well, an epically long amount of time, 10, 20, 30, 100 years, depending on when you want to start or end the story. So, Homer wrote part of it down, and after the Greeks developed a written language, well then, people started to write down snippets and recollections of other versions of the story that they had heard from the oral tradition, and the, the tradition of telling the story continued, and it carried on from about 700 BCE all the way up to Rome. And when Rome conquered the known world in about the year zero, one of the things that they did is they arrived in Greece and they grabbed this story and they said, this is amazing. They translated the story into Latin. Uh, some Roman writers added episodes of their own, and and the story became, well, epically huge and big. Now, why that's so much fun for me as a steller is because I get to basically go through this, as I said, this jambalaya of stories, plots, characters, and incidents, all of which overlap, contradict, uh, have loose ends, timeline problems, and things like that. And, and I get the freedom and the luxury of cobbling together a really kick-ass story for you guys. And so I get to choose the episodes. I get to ascribe motivations to the characters and that kind of thing. And there will be times, of course, when there's narrative glue missing between episodes. And I will shamelessly and proudly, even in the proud tradition of oral storytelling, just create my own episodes and narrative glue to slap the whole thing together. So it's going to be an awful lot of fun to tell and an awful lot of fun to listen to as a result. Now, one more thing we agreed that we talk about before we said goodbye in this podcast, and, and that's a burning question about the veracity of this story. I, I keep saying the war between Greece and Troy, which may or may not have happened between 1250 BCE or so, and you're likely turning around and saying, well, did the war happen, Jeff? And my answer to that is I could look you dead in the eye and say the story that I'm about to tell you is true. And, and you likely turn around, look me dead in the eye and say, well, what do you mean by truth, Jeff? Quit being coy and 
I'd say, well, it contains allegorical, metaphorical, spiritual, and even existential truth about the human condition. In that way, it's true. And you, you get frustrated with me at that point and turn around and say, well, did it freaking happen? Was there a war in time or space, Jeff? I don't care about allegorical, metaphorical, or existential truth. Did the war freaking happen? And my answer to that question, if you press me, would be maybe. I don't really know. Now, I'm not an expert. I'm an enthusiast. I, I'm, I'm not a historian. And But what I will tell you from the years I have spent playing and delving into this material is that the jury is still out on that very question. Maybe there was a big war, as, as is described in Homer's story and inside of the epics. Maybe there was a minor war. Maybe there was no war at all. I don't know. We don't have the data we need to answer that question quite yet. So, you'll have to make up your own mind. As you listen to the podcast episodes to follow, there are going to be parts that you believe contain metaphorical, existential, spiritual truth. And there are other going to be parts where you're likely going to turn around and say, yeah, I can see that actually happening. And there's going to be other bits where you're likely going to say, not a freaking chance, Jeff. But I'm going to let you make those decisions because your judgment on this will certainly be at least as good and adept as mine. Well, I think that's a great place to leave things and say goodbye. So if you've had fun, if you've been entertained, and if you've been accidentally informed in the process, then please go to my website, Trojan War Story or Trojan Podcast. Hold on, let me get the website correct. I'm doing this for the first time. Trojanwarpodcast.com, where you will find episode number two titled The Torch, sitting and waiting for your listening pleasure. In the meantime, have a great day. Talk to you later. <laughs>